0: Nō no my hi mai. My My name is Tim, and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. Understanding what has happened in our shared past isn't the destination. It's simply the key to unlocking a massive and necessary conversation about who we are as a nation and who we want to be. That's a quote from Repairing the Fabric of the Universe to Karate Scarborough's article in this year's volume of Flint and Steel. It's a deeply personal story, tracking the history of his as part of the wider societal shifts for Māori across the 20th century, the story of his own journey with Te Reo Māori, and the sacred work it will take from all of us to repair the rifts in New Zealand's cultural history. This month's podcast is a recording of my conversation with Te Karere at the launch of Flint and Steel on a humid night at a bar in Mission Bay in Auckland. In the conversation, we talk about the themes of his article. The growing numbers of people looking to learn te reo answer some surprising audience questions and we even discover why Te Karare decided to change his own name as an adult. To read Te Karare's article, head to flintandsteelmag.com where you can see it as a preview of this year's volume of Flint and Steel. And maybe you could order your own copy of the magazine. For now, we begin with my introduction to Te in a room full of friends and food at the Good George in Mission Bay. Now we're, we're going to have a little korero, but first I thought I'd do a little introduction. He's introduced in Flint and Steel as a poet, writer and media personality, but he's more than that. Some of you may be familiar with him from TV appearances on Seven Sharp and Breakfast talking about parenting dilemmas and the solutions. Now, for me, I first encountered Takarade at the Sir John Graham lecture a few years back. When he spoke, he just blew me away. So you see, some people, they can talk. Some people can think. But you don't often see someone doing both at the same time. (laughs) He can... This guy can do it. My wife already disagrees with you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have an addendum from Chloe a bit later. (laughs) Some people don't need to be on on TV, but we need people like Te Karere on telly. I said he's more than a media personality and writer and poet. Now, I hope he might do some poetry, but he's recently started studying his two passions, theology and Te Reo Māori. It's Te Reo Māori that he writes about in Flint and Steel, and how that connects him to Te Ao Māori, and what that means personally and might mean nationally. If I were to say to you, Te Kārere, tell me your story, how would you start? I would probably
1: start with my mother and father in an RSA, quite drunk, looking at each other from across the room, Uh, but I'll stop the story there. My story, my mother was brought up in a little place called Purti, which is just outside of Whangarei, really small community, cool place. The community has a marae, a pub and a league uh, club, and this is how you can tell it's a small community. Uh, they could only have one defibrillator between the three of them. And so they all came together and had this big corridor, and they asked the question, what is open the most, which is the pub. And so the defibrillator is at the pub and if there's a heart attack I- anywhere in the region, someone yells out, I'm going to the pub, and they and, and they take off. So that's my mother, She um, her name is Whitiyao, and she's a descendant of heaps of cool mana wahine, lots of famous Māori from there. Uh, my biological father is English, third generation, uh, my... Great-great-grandmother was Irish and came over, and my great-great-grandfather was English, uh, hence the name Scarborough. I also talk about my matua whangai, my stepfather, who's from a place called Ngāti Haua. There's an amazing prophet from that area uh, in Matamata. Uh, they do claim Jacinda. Yeah, the name of that tūpuna was Hana So yeah, that's a start. Live in Auckland, study those things, come to places for free food, that's me.
0: I think what's what, what's interesting to me is maybe if I asked a Pākehā that question, they'd start talking about themselves. But you, in a sense, were were a papering. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, it's just it's a bit cliche, but you know, often the frames of reference for our sign- significance are represented in what do you do for a living versus a Māori perspective, which is where are you from? And so that point of reference, I can't make sense of the world unless I understand those things. Um, and building meaning on top of uh, what clothes I wear or job I have, without that foundation for me, uh, can be troublesome. For all of us, it could be troublesome. Yeah.
0: I know. Look, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I used to go. I used to live in New York City, and I lived in a place called Spanish Harlem that wasn't particularly salubrious. So if I was downtown and people would say, "Where do you live?" and I knew exactly what they were asking, which was should I should I continue to talk to you or should I make a polite cough and move somewhere else? And I'd say, Spanish Harlem, and I would see the light go out in their eyes. And and I think we have such we often have a very superficial view of who we are if we're not related to other people. And I think that leads me to what I was going to ask you next, which is about your article in Flint and Steel. The title is called is, is repairing the fabric of the universe. Now, where did that come from? It came from a really famous Māori tohunga or priest. His name uh, was
1: Māori Marsden, Māori being his actual first name. That's how Māori he was. He was from way, way, way up north, and uh, he's got an interesting story uh, because he was extraordinarily intelligent, brought up in a very Māori community, and he had a faith background too. And so, um, cut a long story short, he finished high school at 14 years old here in Auckland, was too young to go to Auckland University, and so ended up just enrolling into uh, World War II. He goes over to World War II as as a young buck, survives, comes back, and on his return, he ends up in the Hokianga, uh, up north, at a place called a Whare A Whare was a context um, created in the mid-1900s to capture a lot of the learning that was disappearing because of what some would deem fatal impact, but kind of the, the influence of, of colonisation and globalisation. So a lot of iwi had these houses where the most famous knowledge keepers would come together and share. As a young kid, he was invited to these contexts, and so when he returned from the war, naturally he got invited back into these contexts. So this is the higher houses of esoteric learning for Māori. Anyways, he arrives there, and an old kaumātua says, hey, boy, how did the war end? And he goes on to describe the difference between an explosive bomb and an atom bomb. And in doing so, he talks about splitting the atom, and uh, and the kaumātua replies that the elder Māori, do you mean to tell me those Pākehā scientists have figured out how to rend the fabric of the universe? Very Māori way of understanding the concept of a nuclear bomb, eh? and Māori Marsden replies, yes, they have. And then he goes on to say this Mātua, well, have they figured how to put it back together again? And Māori replies, no, no, they haven't. I love that story and the concept of the fabric of the universe for a few different reasons, Uh, First, it talks about the idea that you can't just undo history uh, and you can't undo action. So everything done after something has to be done in light of that thing. Uh, You can't just sweep it under the rug is another way of putting that. But the other reason I really love that metaphor and that motif and why it's always stuck with me is if you look at the concept of the universe at an atomic level with particles or relationally, actually we are all interconnected. So that, that weaving back together, uh, it can't be done uh, in separate parts if we're trying to weave something, especially here in New Zealand, uh, which is going to benefit all of us. So yeah, that, that that was a motif which came to mind um, when I was asked to speak at the um, Sir John Graham lecture and the one that I led with in, in the article.
0: I, I do recommend the article because it's a, it's a personal story, but it's also a national story in a sense. Can you tell me a bit about about how you framed both of those, sort of running in parallel? I mean, I just, I am a,
1: a product of the history of this country, yeah. both in my ethnicities and how I was brought up. My mother's family, who were from up north, they moved and came into the big smoke, into Tamaki Makoto in her early 20s, and they followed it all, a lot of amazing job opportunities, but um, by the time I rolled around uh, in the mid-80s mid and, uh, and came to life, there was this kind of distinct urban identity that had taken hold of Māoridom. And reflecting back on it now, I always counted myself as someone who was lucky because we had a roof over our heads and um, my mother and stepfather stayed together and I went to the movies more than others. All of those things for me were indicators of I was doing really, really well. Um, But in light of what was happening to uh, an entire generation of, of young people being brought up, um, it was the, yeah, the, the end conclusion of assimilation and assimilist goals. In retrospect, trying to undo some of those policies in my own life, cultural reclamation as well as a, as a larger people group um, with my Māori family is, is, has been difficult. And so it's not a national story or a personal story. I am a person within the national story, so it's concurrently both. And I think
0: that probably leads to your te Māori journey. How did that begin? What was the moment when you decided to, to put one foot in front of the other and, and intentionally start to learn today? I ended up a couple of years ago in a senior position at an amazing
1: charity, Parenting Place, and on the outside my life looked really, really amazing. I was making a, a great contribution to um, communities and I was in a loving, supportive environment, um, but there was an emptiness there which I couldn't reconcile And the emptiness was uh, i started defining myself by paradigms and perspectives that i don't think served me the best so i was actually the person who would say what do you do for a living rather than where are you from it's almost like i started playing this game because i wanted to do well and then i forgot that i was playing and i was a part of it and i was challenged by a, a good friend of mine in my early 30s who said um, you know, you want to stand up and talk about Māori things, but if your own people and your marae don't know who you are, and if you can stand and speak very eloquently in Pākehā, but you can't stand and speak on your own marae in Māori, um, there's a challenge there for you. And it really, yeah, it was, a, it was the final thrust I needed to essentially change course and say that language acquisition was going to be the number one thing in my
0: life over the next five years. As you described that, it sounds to me like a conversion experience, but also one prompted by a wero. That, where do you stand? I think what this person, her name is Tewaka, I think what she
1: articulated so well was um, the, the emptiness of this life that I was building. Let me tell a story. So, my wife and I have three children. Our boy, Paul is 12. Our girl, Hinewai, she's the middle child, she's seven. And our other uh, girl is four years old. We sent him to Māori schools, and one day he was there uh, doing his kapahaka practice, cultural um, practice, and they were training hard for this competition, primary school. There's people between five and ten in this big group, you know, 30 of them practicing for this competition, and the two Māori teachers walk out of the room, and the 10-year-olds of the group are expected to lead and shepherd them over their own lunchtime so they can continue practicing. A fight breaks out because 10-year-olds want to be 10-year-olds and don't want to be practicing at lunchtime. And there's this big argument around whether they should practice or not. And my son bursts into tears and he runs out crying and he's inconsolable. And one of the teachers walks up to him and says, What is wrong with you, Paura? Why are you so upset? And he said something I'll never forget, something that I actually yearn for. He said... I could see and feel, viscerally, I could see and feel my ancestors in that room that were disappointed that we couldn't do this thing well and I just want to make them proud. Inherent in his answer is a grounded spirituality and version of being human, which I think all Māori and all indigenous peoples long for. But I would go a step further than that and I would say actually all people long for. And and after stories like that, I couldn't... I couldn't continue building the straw man or the straw house um, knowing that um, it could go up in flames. We were only one crisis away from everything falling over.
0: Tearing down the straw man, tell me how you do that. You have to disassemble an identity that you've built up very carefully and you're attached to it.
1: One of the things which was really difficult was reframing what it means to be Māori in this country. And that wasn't difficult to do after I got a roll-on because my parents are Māori, I'm surrounded by Māori, but I didn't realise how much I'd internalised particular conversations. Uh, Moana Jackson, uh, in a famous lecture, he said, uh, said this line, he said, often we framed as once were warriors based on the movie, but if you have a look at what masculinity looked like, for the majority of the time, we were once were gardeners, once were lovers, once were nurturers of kids. And I think internally those were things I needed to wrestle with and undo, actually my own stereotypes about myself. I think the other thing which is difficult is there wasn't just this wave of colonisation or a particular way of being that I was overwhelmed with and could it come back from. At a certain point, consciously you do decide, I'm going to choose this way of being rather than this way of being because of the benefits. And, and and so a part of it, actually, for many Māori who go to a Pākehā school and, like myself, end up doing really, really well and build a cool career, a part of it is going, oh, I actually consciously bought into some of those ideals myself. So a bit of self-care and love goes a long way. But I think, ultimately, the process of decolonising is is asking yourself, yeah, where does meaning come from? There's a that that says... Uh, Go back to your maunga so you can be cleansed by the wind. And I think that was an important thing, connecting to land. It's like every part of my body felt alive in a way that it didn't in other contexts. And so I couldn't, even though cerebrally, uh, um, you know, intellectually, I couldn't define what was going on. It's like my heart and my spirit was like, nah, man, you're, you're more than this. And your children, you want for them to have a different way. And so, yeah, that's just been a part of, a part of the journey. Learning Māori sucks, though. Ah, sucks. Honestly. Tell me how it sucks. Oh, I'll sit in a class, and there will be Pākehā students learning Māori and Māori students learning Māori. And someone will stand up, and they'll talk about, I don't know, raupatu, land confiscations or colonisation or the fact their cousins are on meth or um, particular you know, laws that were passed, whatever it is. And it's like, I don't want to disappear for 10 minutes and kind of get upset, but I just can't help it. And and it's compounded because even though I r- work really, really hard, um, the concept of language trauma uh, is a difficult thing to get past, so I'm not bringing the best of myself, so I feel stupid in that context. Uh, so, I, sorry, what's language trauma? Language trauma is the idea that for anyone who is learning uh, uh, an indigenous language or a first language as a second language, uh, they go through all of these emotional uh, hoops they have to jump through in order just to learn that language. Um, I mean, it's punctuated with this, you know. Every time I learn a new word for someone else who isn't Māori, they just learnt a new word. Every time I learn a new word, I'm reminded of the fact that I'm 35 years old and this is the first time that I've known that word. So all of these emotions just compound on themselves and turn you into not the best learner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There've been a number of changes that you've gone through on this journey, and one of them's one of them's quite personal in the sense of your name.
1: Yep. So Te Karere, Fitzial, uh, those two names were added only three years ago. Only three years ago. Uh, my name when I was born was Zane. I was Zane for a long, long time. My mother, it's very normal for lots of Māori to want to change their name to decolonize. and so this was my story. Um, my mother was born Fitzial, which is the name of a famous princess up north. She got called Raewyn for all the same reasons that a lot of immigrants will change their names, it's easy to remember. Um, and in her 40s, she went back to Fitzial. When I had my kids, I gave them all Māori names, me and my wife, that was important to us. Uh, But in uh, my mid-twenties, I asked my mum a question and I said, you gave birth to me, you raised me as a single mother, would you ever consider renaming me? And she said, I'll think about it. And she thought about it for five years. (laughs) She thought about it for five years. Which is funny because it's, it's, you know, even though she'd been through the process herself, that's what sentimentality can do, eh? You imbue your name with meaning. Uh, eventually she said, yep, let's explore some names, and so we went through a whole bunch of different names. It was funny, though, she'd be like, what about this name? And I was like, "Oh, what was that person like? Slayed a lot of people. Nah. <laughs> what about this person? Mm, I don't know. And eventually I actually asked my mother, I asked her if I could take her name. A lot of Maori names are androgynous, but her name is, is a female name, and I was like, doesn't matter to me, you're my, you're my world, you know, she's an amazing woman. And so I decided that I was going to be called Fitzial. Uh, the problem is I hadn't talked to an important stakeholder, and that was my wife. <laughs> and so I was so excited, and I told her, I'm going to be called Fitiao and she said, bro, that's so weird. And as you do, I got deeply offended and said, why do you want to stamp on the manor of my mother's name? And we didn't talk about it for a good two months, and two months is a long time to stew, and oh, I stewed. Eventually, I walked up to her and I said, I am going to call myself Fitziel. And she said, Okay. She said, On one condition. And I said, What is that? She said, As long as you call me my dad's name, (laughs) Ellen. And I thought about it (laughs) still. I I actually thought about it. And then I thought, uh, Ellen and Fitziel having pillow talk? Now, that is weird. And so we kept looking for a name, and the name Te Karere came up, which in Māori it means the message or the messenger, uh, and it was the name of a brother um, that passed away, and the idea of me getting called that name is I get to fulfil some of the aspirations that he would have had. So I went from you know, Zane David Bristow Scarborough to Te Karere David Scarborough. You know, it's funny, I go to an Auckland Council meeting. They always ask me to do the karakia now because I've searched out the Maori names before you arrive. <laughs> Never happened before. Zane wanted to do a karakia before, but all good. <laughs> <laughs> no, Zane, sorry. <laughs> we're waiting.
0: We're waiting for the sky to cut. Who's going to show up? <laughs> yeah. What's your advice to uh, Pakeha who are contemplating learning Te Reo Maori? Cut a few, work, go for it,
1: but know why you want to learn it. So if you're going to do a couple of classes, a couple of night classes, you know, for six months and never do it again, you don't have to have the deep why moment. Uh, But if you're taking it seriously, really think about why you want to learn te reo Māori. And the reason for that is speaking the Māori language is probably one of the most external ways you can value a particular conversation or, or value a language. And you will get challenged from Pākehā, as you know, or non-Māori, but you also get challenged from Māori too. And so you really need to, I think, be wholly convinced this is something that you want to do long term if you're going to take it seriously. I don't say that lightly. You might bum into me or some of my friends and we'll give you a pat on the back and a hug and say, go for it, you're amazing. Um, but you might meet uh, Zane or someone like Zane who may have been really upset that you can speak more language than they can and they had to drop out of school to get a job at Pack and Save and they haven't left there and so learning te reo Māori will be something they never conceive of themselves ever doing. Um, whether that's practically real or not, um, you might meet meet that other person too and so you've got to have a little bit of kaha in the way that you you, you answer the question why you want to learn it. The other reason though is, man, Languages are a, a window into a different world. When I was 17, I went to South America for 14 months on a student exchange. Should have been 12 months, but I spent two summers there. It was so amazing. And there was a moment where I could sit in a room speaking Spanish, and I knew the jokes, I knew the history. Um, we talked at length about Pinochet and, and their history. And I saw the world from their perspective, and my world was better off. It was so much better off. And you know, often we like benchmark um, Sweden or Denmark or these other contexts for how, how much better they do than us. But the foundation of this country is a bicultural one or a multicultural one. And it's much harder to do multicultural or bicultural things than it is to do mono, monocultural things. And so uh, if that's the vision that we've committed to, I think we need to be uh, really committed to why it's important. Um, because if not... I don't know. We just end up falling over. We don't have enough kaha to stand up to all of those people and convince ourselves that it's uh, that it's worth it.
0: I think also possibly a sense of humility in that, as a pakeha you're gonna you're gonna mess it up. You're gonna you're not you're not gonna get it right, and and maybe that's an uncomfortable position, particularly if you're someone. Uh, you, you started to learn in your, your mid-30s. You're kind of formed. You think you've got, it, you've got it all down. And guess what? You don't. Oh, look, it's, it's totally true. And look, if you're not doing it for you, do it, do it for your kids. Do it for your kids' kids.
1: You know, the curriculum rolls out in 2022. And um, I've had a look at the brief outline of the history curriculum that's going to be rolled out in every high school. It's all of the stuff that we don't like talking about at dinner time. You know, you know what I mean. This is going to be the conversation that's happening in every high school with every single student. We can't just escape this stuff with these generations that are coming up. And so, humility is a is a wonderful trait and a really important trait. You know, the other idea is you don't need to generate significance in every single moment of your life. You know, for me, I, I had a good chat to a parker friend, and I was like, "Bro, shut up." And he was like, "What do you mean?" I was like, "You don't have to say everything all of the time. Like, it's okay." And we had this really interesting dialogue where he said, nah, bro, for you, when you get older, 40, 50, 60, in your community context, in your Maori context, you're gonna end up having the right and people won't challenge that or they'll come under that. He said, for me, I just need to make sure that whenever i have the chance to say something and have my perspective heard that it's going to be heard there isn't a a, an intergenerational place that i'll make it to where my opinion will matter more than it does now it matters right now in this room and i have to say it it was actually a compulsion for him to share what he had in that room at that time and it gave me a lot of empathy for as i've talked about a few times the idea that we have to say it or the moment's gone people don't think we're smart you know we, we should have more than that To draw on in terms of our meaning and significance the other thing is i always say to maori speak up more and to pākehā just speak less learning is a uh, listening is a wonderful tool some pākehā can do it really really well some can't same as maori i suppose but yeah learning how to listen um and not strategize or make something better just to let it be is a very maori trait and i think it's something that we can all learn from
0: what gives you hope kids
1: man Honestly, like, we're doing all of this heavy lifting to, like, undo some of our kind of formed ideas and thoughts. You know, there are some estimations by 2050 that up to 50% of our population is going to identify as non-Maori. And it's simple maths. It's the same thing that's freaking out all the, um, you know, the right-wing kind of militia Americans. Maori, Pacific, Asian have more babies than they have them younger. Pakia families, as in European descent, have less babies and they have them later, there's going to be a huge shift and change. And our kids are being brought up now in those schools. Their EQ is going to take into consideration not just their own cultural perspective, but the perspective of different faiths, different cultures. And I think being brought up in that context, they're going to leave us in the dust. And so, to some degree, Myself included, we just need to do what we can and not inflict that much damage on these kids uh, and, and trust that actually, you know, that their ancestors have a different vision for themselves. I believe that about my
0: kids, and they will hopefully fulfil that. If you could uh, introduce this, uh, this poem and then read it. Kwina. This is a poem, an
1: excerpt from Apirana Taylor's poem, Sad Joke on a Marae. It's It's pretty heart-wrenching. Uh, if you consider that uh, the truth of what's in this poem still exists today in all communities, yeah. So this poem mimics uh, the pepehau, the tribal motto, and it says this. And the only Māori I knew I called Tihei order Above me the tickle tickle raged. He ripped his tongue from his mouth and threw it at my feet. Then I spoke. My name is Tu- the freezing worker. Ngati DB is my tribe. The pub is my marae. The fi- my fist is my taiaha. And jail is my home. Tihei Modi order, I cried. They understood the tickle tickle and the ghosts, Though I said nothing but tihei Modi order, For that's all I knew. Koina. We are going
0: to have some questions from the audience. So just just so that people can hear, what is the antidote to that poem?
1: For me, based on my own personal experience and on kind of the wider body of research, Maori kids do not do well in mainstream schools. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty damning indictment on many mainstream schools. The achievement levels of Maori. Now, I say on schools as this kind of this thing over there because I know so many amazing teachers and principals who slog their guts out for kids that other people have forgotten about. The problem is, though, is the stats don't lie, and at the end of the day, kids who come out of total immersion schools connected to their culture will often do better spiritually, uh, emotionally, and academically. So even though they are learning in a different language primarily, Kura are doing a decent job of introducing English and over the arc of those young people's lives, their health outcomes and well-being outcomes are far better. And so, if I could just do something like that, it would to be to get every Maori student and put them within a Maori school um, from, you know, day dot um, as the as the antidote. In terms of what people in this room might be able to do, there are so many barriers for young Maori in their inability to articulate what's going on, they don't know how to say it, but they can feel it. And so many Pakia in my life, amazing people, including my Pakia family, but teachers have gone to extreme ends to make sure that Um, that I was either given opportunities or second chances or being misunderstood in in mainstream curriculum, that that wasn't going to be like a long-term sentence on me. A lot of people fought for me because they could see the spark and I I, I had something that other teachers couldn't see. And and I think if you put that bet on many Māori students, you would come out tops. Uh, I'm from up north, and so we have a particular perspective, which is not representative of everywhere, but when the Ngāpuhi tribes uh, went to the Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal, uh, before any settlement issues they wanted to sort out, they had a question, and the question was this. Did Ngāpuhi, through the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, cede sovereignty to the Crown? That was the only question that they wanted answered before they would progress. Uh, I, I won't bore you with the report, but you should read it if you get into the stuff. Um, but the, the damning answer or the, 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 the major answer that came back from the Waitangi Tribunal was no, Maori never ceded sovereignty. And so if you take that as gospel, as truth, as, as, as fact... A lot of people disagree with that but if you take that as fact it actually means notions of partnership or the way that we reconcile an english translation and a maori translation into these principles that we've got around the treaty of waitangi should be challenged and one of the ways it could be challenged is having a new constitution moana jackson and a whole bunch of amazing amazing academics and thinkers They spent many, many years travelling the Mutsu asking Māori what are their thoughts on Māori sovereignty um, in light of this information and uh, the own whikāro from Māori communities. And what they've proposed in a document called Mā Mai is constitutional reform that proposes eight different ways we might be able to do parliament and law that is different. And they've got a 20-year goal, 2040, to try and get that cranking. I'm very interested in that conversation, and I think when people do the research and they have a really good look at it, it's got a lot of validity, and so, yeah, my my dream is that uh, Māori words be represented and their voices would be represented different in in, in all levels of local and and central government um, for the reason that, you know, I mean, I'm a faith-based person. Theologically, it was seen as a covenant when the treaty was signed. Hefakaputanga had already happened. We were already an independent nation which was engaging with the crown. Uh, so historically, there is there is precedent there for us to maintain a, a different form of government. And and more than that, I think morally, it's correct for us to engage in a different constitution. So that's my whikaro. I probably shouldn't have said that. Now, half of you might not want to read the magazine, but give it a jam anyways. <laughs> All
0: right, time for one more question. How do you reconcile your Pākeha and your Maori roots? Oh, easily. I love both. I love both.
1: My Pākeha family and our roots and our heritage are amazing if you think about the, just the last three generations, but man, Western culture is pretty amazing. I really value democracy. I really value Western thinkers. I've, I, I value Hellenistic culture you know, through the Roman Empire. I value amazing Latin fathers. I uh, appreciate the Reformation. I love English culture. I love actually that my church, the Hahi Mihinari, the Anglicans, broke away from the Catholics. Uh, I love the humanitarian aspirations. I love the humanitarian aspirations of Wilberforce and a whole lot of those people um, who wanted to make sure that what happened in Sierra Leone and happened in India around colonisation didn't happen in this country. Amazing heritage. But any single value system that is turned up to the max, I almost imagine it like a music studio, you know, like a um, there's all of these different dials. Any particular value system that is turned up to the max has its faults. And my mildiness needs to critique the pakeha in me and in this country because those values have been turned up to the max and so many people I know are hurting because of it. And so it's not this tussle, am I Māori, am I Pākehā? As I said, I'm a product of this country. Um, but the difference for me is that I have to walk in both worlds um, and the majority of people here don't. But it's our heritage, isn't it? Are we not here by the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi? Is that not the founding document that invited other people to settle here? Well, it is. Why don't we give it respect? Why isn't that Māori heritage your heritage? That's probably more some of the challenges I have um, rather than myself trying to reconcile but other people trying to come to terms with um, the way this country was formed and some of those obligations should play out.
0: Yeah. No, I love being Pākehā. Te Kārere... you had me. You had me all the way. You see, I'm Catholic, and <laughs> I've just had a gutsful. <laughs> Look, I, can, can we put our hands hands together? A big kia ora to to car Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. To see more of our research and analysis and sign up for our monthly forum email head to maxim.org.nz we'd love to say a big thank you to the community of supporters who make our work possible thank you so much from me and the rest of the maxim team Matewa, goodbye for now